Welcome back to The Dark Side. I'm your host, Brianna. Dyson is here. Hello. And this is Dark Adaptation. Woo! Thanks for tuning in to part two of the Halifax explosion. And remember, since it is the last episode of May, at the end of this episode, we're announcing some topics for June and we'll be choosing the rest. So make sure you tune in to that. Stick around to the end to find out what June holds for all of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, another little reminder to send us case suggestions so that we can shout you out when we pick your recommended topic. Yeah. Oh, and mm-hmm. how can I forget? We have patches now. Oh, yeah. We got some patches. Our first piece of merch. Yeah. Our little patches. They're beautiful. And I'll let them do the talking. So follow us on social media. Check out those patches. And that's where you can find out how you can go about purchasing one and supporting a great little pod. Yeah. God bless you if you get it, too. Wrapping a little indie podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We're committed to you and delivering excellent content. content. So help support us yeah so that let's just dive right into part two because that's what the people are here for yeah let's go so i'll do a little recap obviously if you have not listened to part one go and do that Mm -hmm. because you'll you'll just be picking up to to a bunch of absolute chaos uh, yeah wondering huh huh how the fuck did this all happen how do i get here So uh, we had been talking about the Halifax explosion, which is a Canadian disaster that occurred at the Halifax Harbor when a French cargo ship laden with high explosives collided with a Norwegian vessel Mm -hmm. and uh, kaboom. Big kaboom, (laughs) actually. A very, very large kaboom. Huge. And a tsunami. And a tsunami. Yeah. That was was a, woof. And several It was a moment. Yeah. So we had talked about this, um, of the history of the area. We talked about the disaster itself. So the collision, the fire, and ultimately the explosion. Yeah, and a little bit about the devastation, thanks to the accounts of one firefighter who survived. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Ooh. Yep. And when we left off, I had talked about the rescue efforts and the absolute chaos and nightmare that was, uh, that it was for everyone involved not not for not without the efforts and like quick thinking from everyone everyone in the community and outside of it Mm -hmm. they were quick to try i know and get this under control yeah the immediate like uh, um rescue efforts relief efforts were just uh amazing amazing from like far-reaching communities that were like hey we're coming to help Mm -hmm. and things were converted to hospitals quick ships schools everything were yep. like we we got a plan here they start immediately on the morning started forming different committees yeah they mobilized yeah real quick yeah so make sure you listen to part one to hear about all of that mm-hmm. and uh for this part two which is the concluding part mm-hmm. we're just gonna pick uh up right up where i left off um and it's just gonna continue with more chaos and absolute devastation we're gonna jump right into the deaths and the absolute destruction of property and lives. So, okay. right on a dark note, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> the exact number of people who were killed by the disaster is unknown. The Nova Scotia Archives and Records Management has an official database called the Halifax, Halifax Explosion Remembrance Book, mm-hmm. and it identified 1,782 victims. Um, as many as 1,600 people died immediately in the blast, the tsunami, and the collapsing buildings. Mm-hmm. A caretaker at the exhibition grounds was killed, and their body was the last one to be recovered mm. in the summer of 1919. Whoa. Two years. All yeah. like A year and a half later. Wow. So they... <laughs> it's fucked. Yeah, it just goes to show the scope of the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. 9,000 people were injured. 1,630 homes were destroyed in the explosion and ultimate fires. 
12,000 homes were damaged and roughly 6,000 people were left homeless and 25,000 had insufficient shelter. Yep. The city's industrial sector was pretty much obliterated. The dockyard was heavily damaged and many workers of both the factories and the dockyard were among those who had died. Yeah. Many of the wounds inflicted by the blast were permanently debilitating. There was that flying glass from the window shattering Mm -hmm. um, or just injured from the flash and the sound of the explosion. Yeah. Thousands of people had stopped to watch the ship burning in the harbor. Mm -hmm. So whether they were right there in the harbor or they were still inside gathering at the windows of their building, um, gathering at the windows left them in direct path of the glass fragments. Yeah. So roughly 5,900 eye injuries were reported. Oh. Almost 6,000 eye injuries. Yeah. And 41 people lost their sight permanently. Yeah. An estimated $35 million in damage uh, was reported. That was $35 million in 1917. Yeah. How much is that now? $639,323,467.26. Wow. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. Holy so many hell. digits. Yeah. So almost 640 million. Yep. That's so much. Because remember, there was like some factories, like full on industrial factories, cotton mills mm-hmm. um, that were like leveled. Like they were obliterated and there was nothing left except the damage, um, like ground floor, like the base of it. Yeah. <sighs> oh my God. And factories back then too were like, a huge fucking deal because odds are they supplied a lot to like other continents like mm-hmm. you know like the war in ukraine right now for example is absolutely devastating the bread market and like wheat or mm-hmm. and like pakistan and stuff's now having like uh like issues with starvation because no one can afford that's... the only thing that they would eat would be like wheat and stuff that is devastating yeah it's, it's terrible so like when these factories go out like no it's a huge deal Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, then think about how the city was at this point really important and really thriving because of its location and its um, uh, relationship to the war mm-hmm. and how it was employing like thousands and thousands of people and holding and hosting people for the war. Yeah. And it's just leveled with Gone. almost $640 million worth of damage. About $30 million in financial aid was raised from various sources, including $18 million from the federal government, over $4 million from the British government, and $750,000 from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, they came in and helped. They're like, this is not wicked, eh? Hi, Americans. This is not not wicked cool. This is not wicked cool. (laughs) I just feel like people in driving on that side of the of the Mm-mm. channel, not wicked smart. <laughs> not wicked smart. Yeah. Put that whole goddamn town in their review. <laughs> <laughs> so remember the harbor, one side is Halifax, the other side is Dartmouth. And Dartmouth was not as densely densely populated as Halifax. And it they were separated from the blast by the width of the harbor, but they still suffered a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Almost 100 people were estimated to have died on the Dartmouth side. Windows were shattered and many buildings were damaged or destroyed, including the Oland Brewery and parts of the Star Manufacturing Company, which was a big deal. That was uh, t- employed tons of people and was one of their big sources of import-export. Yeah, that's another thing. So, like, now all this happens and then also like long term mm-hmm. people can't work there in a- anymore either yeah jesus nova scotia hospital was the only hospital in dartmouth and many of the victims were treated there so they were overrun like crazy mm-hmm. now this part i'm gonna talk about two specific um like communities that it's just the whole time i'm talking about it you're just gonna be like are you fucking serious and it's like shocking, but not shocking. That's really what's most devastating about it. Mm-hmm. So there was a small, um, there were small enclaves of Mi'kmaq, 
which are First Nations people, mm-hmm. in and around the coves of Bedford Basin on the Dartmouth, Dartmouth side. Right. Uh, directly opposite to Pier 9 on the Halifax side sat a community in Tufts Cove, which included the Mi'kmaq community of Turtle Grove. In the years and months preceding the explosion, the Department of Indian Affairs, that's what it was called, yep. had been actively trying to force the Mi'kmaq to move up, like give up their land, move out, and go to a reserve. They were trying to get them away from the area, but it had not occurred by the time of the explosion. Um, Turtle Grove was close to the center of the blast Mm -hmm. and the physical structures of the settlement were obliterated by the explosion and the tsunami. Yeah. A precise Mi'kmaq death toll is unknown. Yeah. As the Department of Indian Affairs and Census records for the community were incomplete. Nine bodies were recovered from Turtle Grove and there were 11 known survivors. Mm-hmm. The Halifax Remembrance book lists 16 members of the Tufts Cove community as dead. Not all in the um, Halifax Remembrance book, those that were listed as dead, not all of them were even First Nations from Tufts Cove. So the numbers just are completely unknown. Right. The Turtle Grove settlement was not rebuilt in the wake of the disaster. Survivors were housed in a racially segregated building mm-hmm. under generally poor conditions, probably really poor conditions. Yeah. And most were eventually dispersed through Nova Scotia. They were just uh. like, oh, it's funny. Well, we wanted you to move anyway. So, yeah, so I guess you just, ship you I guess you fuck. should just leave. Yeah. And I was like, that is absolutely fucked. So I started looking into the Mi'kmaq um, people. Mm-hmm. Did you know that in 1914, over 150 uh, Mi'kmaq men signed up for World War I? Wow. 250 volunteered for World War II and 60 enlisted in the Korean War. Oh, my God. So there's... Yeah. Serving for for us, our, yeah. our fucking wars. Yep. And we don't even help them. No, we have. Your whole community is obliterated. This land that you've lived on at this point for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And we're just like, now you can stay in this dog shit housing area and then you have to leave. Yeah, they were and an wherever you go is, isn't my problem. Yeah, they looked at them as like an inconvenience, even though they were like giving up their fucking lives. Yes. Yeah. And they didn't. Ridiculous. And you know how there was like all these little like, commissions that were formed to help survivors mm-hmm. like they did not get a penny of that really they got nothing not they, even a little no they didn't got, not get any of the money they did not get their any funds to help rebuild their community they were just placed somewhere like i said racially segregated buildings under shit conditions and then told to leave oh we just treated them like shit it's devastating yeah so i was like just reading it like are you oh and so annoying because like you knew it was coming too like you're never surprised when you look into this no it's just no it's sadly not surprising it's just like i can't believe that's how you treat people yeah other people yeah well they weren't under the the purview of the good god of her queen so you know and when i was part of the godly empire woof when i was researching it the how you spell migama is M I apostrophe M M I apostrophe K M A Q, but you pronounce it Migma. Oh, okay. Like the it's supposed to have like a more like a throaty sound like Migamach, mm-hmm. but because it of the way it's spelled, um, for years white people just called them Micmacs. I was gonna say I was like that's. I'm pretty sure I've heard that as Micmac. Micmac. Yeah. And. Micmac. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. How, so, how fucking. Like, we're just like, yeah, you know, I like, we'll just go with the Irish pronunciation again. It's Micmac. When it's like, yeah. it's not your language. So it's, say it how I you fucking, fucking say know. it. <laughs> so it's Migama. Migama. Okay. And yeah, you don't, don't say Micmac. Okay. That's what people called it for years and years. And that's yeah. not even how you say it. It's like your name's Dyson. I'd be like, if someone just decided to call you Dylan, because it was easier. Dylan. But like, I don't really, Dyson is weird. So I think I'll just call you Dylan. Yeah. Or if people are like, 
Well, you're, it's easier to say Brian than Brianna. It's like, that's not my name, though. <laughs> say it right. Yeah. Mikama. And also in my research, um, there... The Mi'kmaq First Nations people still have problems with people in their community, white people in their communities. Mm -hmm. Um, There was like there was this whole like battle going on about all these white people that were like up in arms, um, pissed off because they're like the Mi'kmaq people are like essentially quote-unquote competition for their like fishing industry out there. Oh, with the lobsters and shit. Yeah. And it's like literally if anyone is allowed to go out there and fish and catch anything it's them yeah one thing they <laughs> the people Mi'kmaq need to people get go and they can it's it's in the it's in the treaty they're yeah. allowed to fish their land well i think the problem is we don't fucking teach the treaty in school so people no. need to get it into their fucking heads because like no one's told them up until now so understandable but also like let's correct it they're fucking nations, right? Mm-hmm. Like Canada can't just be like, you where you don't have right to fish here. We can't do that because it's their fucking land. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like sure. First nations. Yeah. First yeah, nations. Yeah, and and like also they never gave it up. <laughs> so like Mm-mm. you know if they're up there and they're fishing, they've always been fishing. We can't just suddenly come in and say, hey, like there's a cap now on what you can do here and just you're not allowed to do this. No, and they, they, the people who are trying to give them a hard time, like it has gone to the courts and stuff. Yeah. And then, and the Mi'kmaq people have come out on top because they're like, no, this is, it's in the treaty. Yeah. It's, it's your fucking laws. Let me just read that out loud for you. And so they're like the retaliation that is still even happening to this day of people lighting shit on fire, lighting shit on fire, the death threats, the Mm -hmm. just absolutely ignorant racially motivated hate yeah like over lobster yeah like uh for people outside of canada like the disputes and 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 like fights that are going on are like teamster wars Mm -hmm. yeah it's like it's like if two unions fucking didn't like each other back in like the 70s it's insanity yeah so i had to i had to mention that Mm -hmm. and the fact that they're still facing problems today because of just absolute assholes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ignorant people. My lobster. My lobster. <laughs> Shut up, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so that is not the only community, though, of people that mm-hmm. were absolutely fucked over. Mm-hmm. The black community of Africville on the southern shores of Bedford Basin, which is adjacent to the Halifax Peninsula, was spared the direct force of the blast by the shadow effect of the raised ground to the south, Mm -hmm. but homes were still heavily damaged by the explosion. Families recorded the deaths of five residents. A combination of persistent racism and a growing conviction that Africville should be demolished to make way for industrial development resulted in the people of Africville receiving no police and no fire protection when the explosion happened. Yeah. Africville received little of the donated relief funds and none of the progressive reconstruction invested in other parts of the city after the explosion. Yeah. Many of them were from families of former enslaved people who had been promised freedom and land in nova scotia Mm -hmm. but because of racism black settlers were pushed to the margins of society and forced to live on inhospitable land and developed their own communities like africville yeah there were and they may do with what they what they were (laughs) essentially forced into yeah they had their own shops there was a school a post office and a seaview united baptist church which was africville Africville's spiritual and social center. Mm-hmm. But Halifax refused to provide Africville with basic necessities like sewage, access to clean water, garbage disposal, mm-hmm. things basic that Halifax needs. had. Yeah. Um, Africville residents who paid taxes, by the way, 
Oh, God. <laughs> asked the city to provide these basic services on yeah. numerous occasions over and over again, but no action was ever taken. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you know what Halifax did do, though, for them? Uh, for them? No. I don't want to say fucking dick all, but well, I don't know what. Well, they were like, oh, well, you're not happy here and you just keep complaining that you don't even have basic necessities. Wow. going to move them. So let's build a shit ton of undesirable developments in and around your community, including an infectious disease hospital, a prison and a dump. Yeah, that sounds like racist municipal planning to me. And then they decided that they would move the residents out of Africville so they could demolish it. Yeah, because they wanted to put up other dog shit structures. <laughs> yeah. And they did this without any meaningful or formal consultation with people living in Africville. No. In fact, it was later reported over 80% of residents had never had contact with the Halifax Human Rights Advisory Committee. 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 <laughs> Committee. Yep. Which was the group charged with consulting the community. Mm -hmm. The destruction of Africville took several years. Uh, residents who could prove they owned their land were offered payment equal to the value of their houses but residents without proof and there was quite a few residents who didn't have like the deed to their home or anything like that right because their family had lived on this site for generations and mm -hmm. they're like we've we've lived here for yeah. years and years like i don't have proof that i own this house yeah. also you've never even come around here before anyway so like <laughs> now i have to prove it mm -hmm. and if they couldn't then they were just given 500 bucks that's so shitty because, like, Halifax is, is known for having, like, one of the richest, like, black uh, heritages in mm -hmm. Canada. Like, their community there, it goes deep. Oh, well, so it's just I hope that they talk about shitty. this when they talk about their black history. I'm sure they do. <laughs> it's, I hadn't, I didn't, honestly never even heard of Africville. Yeah. Or, like, the, I, I knew that, um, especially, like, formerly enslaved people that were coming to Canada mm -hmm. um, came up through Halifax and stuff. And I knew that there was communities, but I didn't know that to the extent of it, that mm -hmm. there was communities, but it was because they were formed by their own people because mm -hmm. they were pushed to the margins of society and they yeah. had no choice. Yeah. After you're, after you were, a, after you were a slave or your parents were a slave and you're promised land and money and freedom. Mm -hmm. And then that's, that's what you get. Yeah. And you don't even get, like in the running like water. cold inhospitable shit too yeah yeah it just makes my blood boil <laughs> so like i said they were they were just given 500 bucks if they couldn't prove that um they owned the house or the land uh those who resisted relocation could have their lands expro expropriated by the city and there were also some accounts of bribery and intimidation being used against residents to force them from the neighborhood. I'm shocked. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Back then, what? yeah. It's so Jesus. wholesome so far. How is, <laughs> how is that a thing? These 1920s police officers just <laughs> seem so understanding and inclusive. <laughs> In the end, despite resistance, all residents were relocated. The last remaining Africville home was destroyed in January of 1970. Now they faced racism in their new homes. In one case, a white neighbor began a petition because they were opposed to accepting a black family in their neighborhood. In another, a man moving from Africville to the neighborhood of Hammond Plains received a letter threatening to burn his house down if he and his family did not leave did not leave and guess what it was signed quote from the white people of hammond plains oh my god <sighs> in the 1980s the africville genealogy society was formed and it began to seek recompense for all the suffering caused by the destruction of the community in 2010 a settlement was reached and the mayor of halifax made a public apology for the raising of africville Mm -hmm. Part of the settlement was used to rebuild Seaview Church, which now serves as the Africville Museum. Nice. So that, at least there is um, a museum. You can go there and learn all about the history, see photos and stuff of Africville. And it is really cool just to see the little, 
the community that they built. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can apologize, but it doesn't make it better. Well, no. <laughs> and uh, it's just such an important part. And I was like, like I, I cannot I'm, talk about the Halifax explosion without talking about this. I, I'm sorry for raising Africville, uh, signed the white people of Halifax. Honestly. Like, like they're probably like, uh-huh. <laughs> well, yeah, there was a ton of them that were like, I do not accept your apology. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't change anything. And also it took all, almost 100 years. So. Yeah. Well, it when the explosion happened, it wasn't like they, like with the Mi'kmaq people, they were immediately like, oh, phew, we were trying to get you out of here anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, with Africville, it was, it didn't happen immediately after that they went in and was like, we're, we're raising this. Like, it was get just out. the catalyst. Yeah, it was a yeah. catalyst. And so by the, by the um, year 1970 mm-hmm. is when the last resident um, had been forced to leave. Yeah. So it was... God, that's just like um like imagine your hometown as it is now and like imagine like instead the neighboring town just decided to slowly kick you out Mm-mm. yeah so instead of the community you have now uh, it would be like industrial zone that's essentially what this ha- what happened it's yeah it's just horseshit they were trying to force them out yeah. by like infectious disease hospital a prison a dump mm-hmm. and then they were like oh damn it, this isn't really working. So we'll force them out. We'll force them to live in a community where these people that they are living with, ignorant white people, mm-hmm. didn't want them to be a part of the community anyway. Yeah. So now they are forced to leave the community of people that they had, their people, their community, the lives they built, to live next to fucking Bill the asshole who's signing a petition to get you out. Yeah. Think about it. We could have had a fucking like, First of all, how like that whole area is trying to get more people in it to begin with now. So we really fucked ourselves. But we could have had like a Chicago like area kind of growing out of that. Like we just passed it all up. We just went like, eh, fuck it. <laughs> like, I don't like them. <laughs> Honestly. It's like you could have had a really cool fucking spot. Why are you here? It's not like we promised you freedom and land. Oh, wait. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, we did? That's something that you should have had. Should have uh, said no take backs. Like, yeah. Anyway, that's a, a dark piece of history about the Mi'kmaq First Nations people mm-hmm. and Africville, which I think it's cool though that there's at least a museum now and you can go and learn all about it. And yeah. just these things are important to educate yourself about. So naturally, when a disaster like this happens, when literally an explosion happens and, and levels part of your town and kills thousands of people, mm-hmm. there is an investigation. They launch an investigation. So many people in Halifax at first believed the explosion uh, was a German attack. Right. The Halifax Herald continued to propagate this belief for some time for example reporting that germans had mocked victims of the explosion while john johansson the norwegian helmsman of imo was being treated for serious injuries sustained during the explosion Mm -hmm. it was reported to the military police that he had been behaving suspiciously johansson was arrested on suspicion of being a german spy when a search turned up a letter on his person, supposedly written in German. Uh-huh. Yeah, it turned out that the letter was actually written in Norwegian because he's from Norway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. Yeah. Immediately following the explosion, most of the German survivors in Halifax had been rounded up and imprisoned. Eventually, the fear dissipated as the real cause of the explosion became known Although rumors of German involvement persisted. Because it is like, it, yeah. it is the wartime. Yeah. But like. Hyster- hysteria <laughs> would go rampant. Yeah, it was hysteria yeah. for sure. I wouldn't sure. pass that at all. But I just love that he's um, Norwegian, the, the uh, helmsman. And they thought, I'm, yeah, the letter. You know what that reminded <laughs> me of? the That fucking 
uh, I remember it was after it was after like the 9-11 stuff and there was that whole like people getting all frenzied and they really had no idea about other cultures. Mm-hmm. And then that dumb fucking old lady on a plane who called the marshal on this guy because he he was he was wearing like a turban and a beard and I'm pretty sure he was sick. Mm. And she, she's like, he's writing out bomb, like, <gasps> bom- like bomb stuff and like in like Arabic and stuff. And oh. He was like a math professor and he was writing out a math equation. <laughs> He's like, what the fuck? I take this flight every other week, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> so then she was mocked relentlessly after, but that was like the same vibe. People just get so, yeah. they're so easy to hype up like that. Yeah, especially in, in times of like trauma. Mm-hmm. Like 9-11 would definitely fuck up a lot of people, but mm-hmm. it's so funny that just because you're wearing a turban and you have a beard and you're writing in Arabic. Yeah. That, that oh no. Yeah. Uh-oh. I don't know if it. I don't know if it was like Arabic or something, but it ended up being a math equation. Oh, I thought you said Arabic. No, she thought it was Arabic. Oh. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. She's fucking dumb. Yeah. And she's was a like, fucking oh, idiot. Oh yeah, math. Yeah. <laughs> I dropped out when I was ten and got married when I was eleven. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> she's ten. <laughs> All right. Okay. So German involvement persisted and um, just wasn't the case. Literally, TNT and benzoyl fuel were the case. Yep. There wasn't even anything German involved. It was a French cargo ship and a Norwegian ship. Yeah. But of course they were going like, well, it's not an accident caused by literally like our government doing this. Like this is their their port. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, you know, a consequence of war is this kind of shit happens. Yes. But they were like, no, no, no. The Germans did this. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, that's easier for you? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Yep. A judicial inquiry known as the Rec Commissioner's Inquiry was formed to investigate the causes of the collision. Proceedings began at the Halifax Courthouse on December 13th, presided over by Justice Arthur Drysdale. The inquiry's report, dated February 4th, 1918, blamed the following people for causing the collision. Montblanc's captain, Aimé Le Medic, the ship's pilot, Francis Mackey, and Commander F. Evan Wyatt, the Royal Canadian Navy's chief examining officer in charge of the harbour, gates, and anti-submarine defences. Wow, that's a job. Yeah. You're in charge of the harbour, the gates, and the anti-submarine defences. It's a hell of a thing. That's just a delegation role. You don't do anything. You just help people. Examining officer, you're right. Yeah. Justice Drysdale agreed with Dominion Rec Commissioner L.A. Demers' opinions that it was the Mont Blanc's responsibility to avoid a collision at all costs, given her cargo. It's reported. (laughs) Fucking threw him under the, well, ship so fucking fast. He got ran into. Yeah. Yeah, she wasn't. She that ship was on the right side, yeah, and the right side, yeah. <laughs> and she gave off the proper warning signals. The everyone on there was being very vigilant, trying at all costs to avoid it. Even the maneuvers and um, the, the avoidance mechanisms they used to not crash were working until mm-hmm. the fucking IMO was like, "I guess we'll just go in reverse." Yeah, like how are you gonna see that coming? <sighs> Like, and it's not like you can you can't move quickly. No, they weren't. Yeah, you're. You, it's the slowest crash with the biggest devastation ever. Mm-hmm. It's reported these days that he was likely influenced by local opinion at the time, uh, which was strongly anti-French, according to Crown. Oh, yeah, yeah. According to Crown Counsel W. A. Henry, this was shocking to most people who were certain the SS IMO was to blame since the ship was on the wrong side of the channel. So everyone yeah. was like, yeah, okay, maybe we got a little bit of anti-French tendencies, but even we are thinking, huh? Yeah. We were all there witnessing this. Yeah. It wasn't Mont Blanc's fault. No. All three men, Captain Aimé Le Medic, Pilot Francis Mackey, and Commander F. Evan Wyatt, were charged with manslaughter and criminal negligence at a preliminary hearing heard by Magistrate Richard A. McLeod and bound for trial. Fuck off. 
Oh, my God. A Nova Scotia Supreme Court Justice, Benjamin Russell, found there was no evidence to support these charges, though. Oh, thank God. Mackey was discharged on a writ of habeas corpus, and the charges were dropped. What's habeas corpus? Um, It protects people against uh, unlawful or indefinite imprisonment. Okay. Um, Because Mackey and Le Medic were arrested on the same warrant, the the charges against Le Medic were also dismissed. On April 17th, 1918, a jury acquitted Wyatt as well in a trial that lasted less than a day. Mm -hmm. So thankfully, most likely because it went to trial, the jury was like, "Uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh-huh. What? So thankfully, even though they were charged, which is insanity, none mm-hmm. of them were char- like were charged with anything. They were let go. Yeah, they were publicly cleared at least too. Like, oh that, yeah, that puts it on paper. It wasn't just like one guy going like they fucking did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's that's terrible. I know. I'm also really surprised about the French anti-sentiment because like, isn't I always thought Halifax had like a large French population. Like, I'm thinking no. Yeah. <laughs> Halifax isn't Nova Scotia. Yeah, I know. No. I was um, gonna say New Brunswick for a minute. I I honestly don't know. If, I think they do have a decent number of French Canadians over there, but at this time, yeah. No. Still no. really anti French. A lot of people are anti French. A lot of like there's like the stereotype everyone goes with that French are assholes. Wow. And people hate <laughs> French. People hate French people. Yeah, I know. Like people are assholes. If they're assholes. It's not yeah. like every French person is an asshole. Yeah. It's just insane. All this is insane. Justice Drysdale also oversaw the first civil litigation trial in which the owners of the two ships sought damages from each other. On April 27th, 1918, he found Mont Blanc entirely at fault. Subsequent appeals to the Supreme Court of Canada on May 19th, 1919, and the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London on March 22nd, 1920, determined Mont Blanc and Imo were equally to blame for navigational errors that led to the collision. Uh, mm-hmm. I, that's so fucking bullshit. Yeah. No party was ever convicted for any crime or otherwise successfully prosecuted for any actions that precipitated the disaster. Mm-hmm. So in the litigation trial, they were just found equally to blame. Other than that, nothing else came legally of anything mm-hmm. even though think of the, the devastation yeah yeah i guess you kind of have to treat it as a natural disaster in that way because mm-hmm. woof. Natural. would you is it re- it wouldn't be fair though to be like this guy's responsible for over a thousand deaths when it's like oh. i think it would yeah he was going there's a speed limit and he was hauling ass yeah he was on the wrong side of the channel mm-hmm. and instead of stopping and getting in line with other people to mm-hmm. leave, he just kept trying to pass. Yeah, that's true. And I guess it just mean like it wouldn't be. his way. Yeah. And then when Mont Blanc is coming up the harbor is giving signal warnings like, hey, like I can see that you don't want to stop or you're coming at me. Yeah. And doing proper Mont Blanc is doing proper maneuvers to avoid a collision Mm -hmm. and whoever is piloting the IMO is just an idiot yeah I guess I'm just clouded by the like absolute scale of it to just pin it into one thing it's just weird to me I don't think you could pin it all yeah but if if it's just to say who's at fault and you need to pin it like not pin it on someone but determine who is at fault Mm mm-hmm I don't know. I think it's pretty clear. I'm with the public. Yeah. All right. Okay. That's fair. I don't think that you should be like you, you solely piloting this ship like an asshole is to blame for almost $640 million in damages and the deaths of almost 2000 people and the injuries of over 9,000 people. Like that's, yeah. a, that's a lot. Yeah. That's where I was getting stuck. Cause, but you definitely, had a a due diligence that you didn't maintain at all. Yeah. Efforts 
efforts began shortly after the explosion to clear debris, repair buildings, and establish temporary housing for survivors um, who were left homeless by the explosion. And by late January 1918, around 5,000 were still without shelter. Mm -hmm. A reconstruction committee under Colonel Robert Lowe. Rob Lowe. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh, we can't can't escape him this weekend. mm -mm. No, he's in everything. Lord. (laughs) So uh, Rob Lowe, he was out there. He constructed 832 new housing units, which were furnished by the Massachusetts Halifax Relief Fund. Nice. Partial train service resumed from a temporary rail terminal in the city's south end on December 7th. So, like, immediately. Mm -hmm. Full service resumed on March 9th when the tracks were cleared and the North Street Station reopened. The Canadian government railways created a special unit to clear and repair railway yards as well as rebuild railway piers and the naval dockyard. Most piers... Most peers. Most peers. Most peers returned to operation by late December and were repaired by January. Mm. The that's fucking it's quick. So fast. Probably because of all the help they had. <laughs> they had so much help. Yeah. Yep. The North End Halifax neighborhood of Richmond took is that's the area that took on like most of the damage from the explosion. Mm-hmm. In 1917, Richmond was considered a working class neighborhood and had few paved roads. Um, so after the explosion, the Halifax Relief Commission uh, like approached their job of reconstruction to, as an opportunity to improve and, and modernize the city's North End. Right. So this guy named Thomas Adams, who was an English town planner and, um, a Montreal arch- Montreal architectural firm, mm-hmm. Ross and McDonald, uh, they were recruited to design a new housing plan for Richmond. Adams, Thomas Adams, was inspired by the Victorian Garden City movement and aimed to provide public access to green spaces and create a low-rise, low-density, and multifunctional urban neighborhood. Oh, nice. So... Still fucking popular today. Yeah. Yeah, people would love that. The planners designed 326 large homes that each faced a tree-lined, paved boulevard. They specified that the homes be built with a new and innovative fireproof material. (laughs) Yeah. So blocks of compressed cement called hydrostone. Oh, The first of these homes were occupied by March 1919. Today, it's an upscale neighborhood and shopping district. Mm. In contrast, the equally poor and underdeveloped area of Africville was not included in reconstruction efforts. Don't forget. Yeah. (laughs) If you were a white folk in the center of Halifax, you got fucked. Hmm? If you weren't white folk in the center of Halifax, you got fucked. Oh, it sounds like you said if you were. No. I was like, um, no, I think you're missing the <laughs> Yeah, point. no, absolutely opposite of what I just said, yeah. <laughs> Every building in the Halifax dockyard required some degree of rebuilding, including the docks themselves and the HMS Neob, which I briefly mentioned in the beginning. Um, I guess it was a big deal because this was a ship, uh, it was like a, a protected cruiser because it was in the Royal Navy. Mm-hmm. Um, she had, she oh they were like she she served in the war in the Boer War and oh god the Boer War so she served and she was given to Canada as like the second ship of a newly created naval service and yeah they took pride in her yeah she, okay she was damaged all right all of the Royal Canadian Navy's minesweepers and patrol boats were undamaged though that's so fucking fortunate but also i guess it would make sense they fucking reinforce those things yeah they're literally part of their like convoy to protect vulnerable ships so i'm I'm glad they didn't take on much damage yeah prime minister robert borden pledged that the government would be quote cooperating in every way to reconstruct the port of halifax this was of utmost importance to the empire Mm -hmm. but not africville or the Mi'kmaq people not part of the empire (sighs) Captain, there's still people. Captain Symington of USS Tacoma speculated that the port would not be operational for months. Thank you, you guy from USS Tacoma. It was nice of you to come and help. 
but what do you know? Yeah. So uh, it's funny because then a convoy departed on December 11th and the dockyard operations resumed before Christmas. Yep. So two, three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Captain Symington. He's like, listen, I was in it. I was in. I mean, you can blame it. him. I'm sure it looked like a fucking hell zone. Yeah, I wonder when he made the statement. Yeah. Pro- probably before he realized how many people like, were Probably before coming. his ears stopped ringing. <laughs> <laughs> he has shards of glass in his eyes, and he's like, this looks fucked. <laughs> <laughs> that is not funny. I didn't see shit. <laughs> Even though this has just been filled with disaster and devastation and destruction and whatever other D word there is, there are some good things that came from this. So, you know how there was like, I don't know, almost 6,000 eye injuries? Yeah. So, uh, these eye injuries, which um, resulted from the disaster because people were looky-loos out their windows and stuff. Yeah. It actually led to better understanding um, for how to care for damaged eyes. And with the recently formed Canadian National Institute for the Blind, CNIB, it's easier to say, Halifax became internationally known as a center for care for people who are visually impaired. The Halifax explosion also inspired a series of healthcare reforms around public sanitation and maternity care. Wow. The event was traumatic for the whole surviving community, so the memory was largely suppressed. Um, After the first anniversary, the city stopped commemorating the explosion for decades. Mm -hmm. The second official commemoration didn't happen until the 50th anniversary in 1967. Wow, that is some serious trauma going on in there. Shoving it as far down as possible. You know what? They... It sounds like they held the first one thinking it'd be a good idea. And then when everyone was in it, they were just broken. And they were like, we can't do this again. It just digs it up. So they had another one 50 years later in 1967. But then it stopped again after that. It still was like, we don't want to do it. We can't deal with this. I imagine like I've heard of people with like, like PTSD from like just well, one I knew, for example, was like they had someone had left a can of soup on the stove. Mm-hmm. And was heating it mm-hmm. without the fucking lid open, mm-hmm. and it blew up, and it shot uh like it exploded and shot like extremely hot fucking soup in their face and shit, and they're like I I couldn't cook for years like shit like that so you I can't know imagine somebody that did that I like read about it in the newspaper oh and it was like Ugh. and um I can't imagine what it'd be like if you're just living by a port. You'd be like afraid to look out your window. Yeah. Like, Am I gonna like, damage my eyes again? Because imagine just being here, and then the next minute you just hear like a deafening explosion, and your fucking windows shatter in. No. Yeah. Sorry, so but- let's hold an anniversary next year about it. <laughs> I'm still thinking about the soup. Wow. It's upsetting, but also who fucking cooks soup in the can? Nobody. Yeah, that's why I was the- like, "What the fuck?" What the fuck? Okay, yeah. like I'm sorry you got soup burns. You know, if it was Alphabetti, uh, Alphagetti, it would have just said, ah! You got so worked up. <laughs> Alphabetti. Alphabetti. Got any Paschetti? Paschetti. <laughs> we wa- did we watch Slam and Salmon? Yes. She gets the hot soup burns. Oh, yeah. She just looks like a nightmare. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that would be so funny. Uh, okay, so yeah, 50 years, 67, 1967, they're like, okay, let's do it. And then after they're like, no, we did, we did it. And no, mm-hmm. construction began in 1964 on the Halifax North Memorial Library, which was designed to commemorate the victims of the explosion. The library entrance featured the first mon- monument built to mark the explosion. It's called the Halifax Explosion Memori- Memorial Sculpture. All right. Fuck. <laughs> it was created by artist Jordi Bonet. The sculpture was dismantled by the Halifax Regional Municipality in 2004. I don't know why. That's odd. The Halifax Explosion Memorial Bells were built in 1985. 
relocating Memorial Carolyn Bell's from a nearby church to a large concrete sculpture on the free on the Fort Needham Hill facing the quote unquote ground zero area of the explosion. Mm-hmm. The bell tower is the location of an annual civic ceremony every December 6th. A memorial at the Halifax Fire Station on Lady Hammond Road honors the firefighters who died while responding to and fighting the explosion. Fragments of Mont Blanc have been mounted as neighborhood monuments to the explosion at Albro Lake Road in Dartmouth and at Regatta Point in Halifax. Wow. Simple monuments mark the mass graves of explosion victims at the Fairview Lawn Cemetery and the Bears Road Cemetery. A memorial book listing the names of all of the known victims is displayed at the Halifax North Memorial Library and at the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic, which has a large permanent exhibit about the explosion. Mm-hmm. Harold Gilman was commissioned to this part's weird to me. Harold Gilman was commissioned to create a painting memorializing the event. Yeah. And it's called Halifax Harbor at Sunset. Okay. And quote, it tells very little about the recent devastation as the viewpoint is set back so that the harbor appears undisturbed. End quote. So I'm just kind of conflicted on if uh. this is if this is a good or a bad thing, like... I can... Uh, I can make... Well, I, I would have to see it. I would have to see the picture. People in the area did did want to forget about it. So maybe if he's commissioned to make a, a piece... But it's supposed to memorialize the event. I, I kind of get it because, like, sunset going down. I can see the imagery of it. Like, mm. it's remembering it for what it was. But it's sunset, so it's ending. And also, the sunset looks like the oncoming of an explosion. Um, I can ah. I can see it. You could really, you could probably make a solid case for it. And also, like, if you're memorializing the people who like died during this event and stuff, like, you don't typically you don't show the disaster or the devastation. You show what it represented prior to it. Like, for example, I would like to change. <laughs> my response now seeing it there's no sunset okay it's it so looks boring. like a dock with like a with it looks like a dock with this just ocean yeah okay i get it i get the controversy now um there's no controversy there wasn't a, like i just personally when i was like looking into this like oh he's commissioned to make a, a piece of art to memorialize the event and whatever but it has nothing to do with the event then why aren't you just commissioned to paint the harbor before are you memorializing the event or are you memorializing the harbor that was fucking flattened yeah it yeah so it's just like it really is a nothing painting i'm really actually disappointed by that i thought it was something else yeah so i I was like maybe i'm just irrationally upset by this painting but if he's if he's commissioned wouldn't they have given him direction on like what there's, to paint? There's or... nothing. Even, even in that picture, like, <laughs> there's nothing. Boat. Yeah, there's nothing commemorating that harbor whatsoever. It's just, like, maybe in the, like, just kind of there. <sighs> anyway. Yeah, that's, anyway. So, I, I, maybe that was, I just was like, what the, what the fuck? Halifax Harbor at sunset? You wouldn't even know it was a harbor. It was like a factory. Yep. Anyway, everyone go look it up. It sucks. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> In 1918, Halifax sent a Christmas tree to the city of Boston in thanks and remembrance for the help that the Boston Red Cross and the Massachusetts Public Safety Committee provided immediately after the disaster. And this gift was revived in 1971 by the Lunenburg County Christmas Tree Producers Association, (laughs) (laughs) which began an annual donation of a large tree to promote Christmas tree exports as well as acknowledge Boston's support after the explosion. The gift was later taken over by the Nova Scotia government to continue the goodwill gesture as well as to promote trade and tourism. Mm. The tree is Boston's official Christmas tree and is lit on Boston Common throughout the holiday season. In deference to its symbolic importance for both cities, the Nova Scotia Department of Natural Resources has specific guidelines for selecting the tree and has tasked an employee to oversee the selection. Nice. It is a very big deal. Yeah, sounds like it. 
I love that. I love that there's a tie to that. I know. Halifax explosion was one of the largest artificial non-nuclear explosions, and for years afterward, it was used as the standard to measure large blasts against. In 1994, Halifax historian Jay White compared 130 major explosions. When doing this, he considered the number of casualties, the force of the blast, the radius of the damage, the quantity of explosive material, and the total value of property destroyed. Mm -hmm. And the Halifax explosion was unchallenged in overall devastation. Holy shit. Yeah. That was in 1994. I think it's still unchallenged because it was fucked. Yeah. Remember, artificial non-nuclear. Yeah. Because, like, talk about Hiroshima or something. That's that's tens of... Hiroshima? Hiroshima. Hiroshima. Yeah. Hiroshima. Hiroshima. Yeah. Non-nuclear. <laughs> yeah. And that, everyone, is the Halifax explosion. Wow. Part two is concluded, and it concludes the uh, just wildness. What do you want? You want an explosion? You want a lot of deaths? You want a tsunami? You want no some one, Christmas trees? Literally, no one wants that but the Christmas trees. <laughs> okay. Sorry, what do you want to hear about? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you, want, you want death? You want explosion? Listen, do you want a tsunami or do you want a Christmas tree? Take your pick. Okay, so now since it's the... Uh, that's, that's that. That's the Halifax explosion. Mm-hmm. So now this means that... Um, hi, it's May 30th. This is the last episode of the month. Yeah. We have to pick June's episodes. Yeah. So we already know that the episode for June 6th will be Robert Raymond Cook, since we had to push um, that episode to June since we were just too busy with work. And I did way too much research on the Halifax explosion. Easier to do two parts. Mm-hmm. So June 6th will be Robert Raymond Cook. Mm-hmm. But we have to choose um, what we'll talk about on June 13th. Hey, that's my mom's birthday. Oh. Happy birthday, mom. It's an early birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. I'll say it again on June 13th. Okay. Love you. So I guess I can generate a number. Okay. Okay. 44. The Noida Serial Murders. This is a case of missing children in India. Oh. Noida serial murders. That's about a serial killer in India. Oh, yikes. That'll be fascinating. That would be. Okay. Buckle up. Happy birthday, mom. (laughs) (laughs) It's her birthday that day. Yeah. June 13th, Noida serial murders. June 20th, we will be doing... Oh, fuck. Madeline McCann. Oh, no. Okay, wait. Do it again. <laughs> I know, because I'm... I forgot. Okay. Holy fuck. <laughs> to pee so bad. I think that the Noida serial murders... Serial murders will be a two-part. Yeah. So... It'll be part one on June 13th. Because I was trying to go through my list and see um, what am I dealing with here. And if I'll know if it will be a one or two parter so that I'm mm-hmm. not bombarded with info. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. June 13th will be the Noida serial murders. Part one and then part two on June 20th. And then June 27th, which is the last Monday in June, is when um, Paige will be on. Nice. So that episode topic is to be determined, and you'll hear about it when we release our schedule. Mm. So stay tuned. podcast coming in. Exactly. I like that. So now we have our episodes. June 6th, Robert Raymond Cook. June 13th and 20th, Noida Serial Murders. June 27th. An episode with Paige. Make sure that you guys send your 
your suggestions because then there's the chance we'll pick it. Yeah. Live on the pod. Mm -hmm. And we'll even shout you out. You'll hear your name and you'll be like, oh shit, that's me. I sent that suggestion in. Yeah. Fucking sick. Yeah. Be dope. Okay. Wherever you're listening, please rate the show. Leave a quick review if possible. Like, share it with, like, one friend, okay? One family member. Share the show with them. You like the show, right? You're here. You're still listening. Mm-hmm. Share it with someone else who will like it. Yeah. We are on Instagram. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. Follow us there. Send us a message. Say mm-hmm. hi. We'll answer you. Yeah. We'll say hi. Yeah. Tune in next week when we change the pace, but we stay in Canada and we talk about Robert Raymond Cook. Mm. We'll catch you on the dark side. Bye. Bye.